Well, we're in a sermon series that we're calling Family Matters because we're trying to understand more of what it means to be the family of God. And that's exactly what God's word calls it. Not an institution, not a club, not a business, not a committee, not an affinity group. Family. And that sounds really warm and fuzzy and sweet. And you say, yeah, family. But here's what I also want you to understand that too few Christians realize. Just because it's family doesn't mean there won't be any problems. What's going on in your biological family? Yeah, that's what I thought. So, yeah, family. But biological families are still filled with sinners. And guess what? The family of God is still filled with sinners. And I think we overly say, but saved by grace, sinners saved by grace. Yes, but don't forget the sin part. It has not been eradicated. It still shows up in shocking and surprising ways. Whether it's a church family or a church ministry, I won't name any, but we have them in the area. And and I see the eyes of people who've moved here from California, and I'm going to work for... And now we're just going to sing kumbaya as we do our jobs because I used to work for this secular company, but now I work for a Christian company. And real quick, they're like, ooh, I got sinned against there. I got done wrong there. There's trouble there. Yes, there will be trouble everywhere because we're still sinners. And so that's what I want you to get a hold of today, that if this is not something we're thinking about and working on, We will not have it. Unity. Peace. Now, the good news is that nowhere in the scripture does he call us to create unity. Hallelujah. We could never do it. He calls us to not just half-heartedly go after this. Eagerly, eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is something we're supposed to be working on. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. But we're going to jump in at Ephesians 3.20 to catch a doxology of praise because I don't ever like to skip doxologies of praise because they're so glorious. So we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be Glory, where? In the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. I therefore, now here's what just happened. The doxology of praise is a pause where Paul just hits pause and praises God as he transitions from three glorious chapters of indicatives. In the first three chapters, there's nothing he's telling us to do. He's just stirring it up. Look what God has done. Look what he's done. Look what he's done. Look what he's done in Jesus Christ and who you are now in Christ. He's transitioning from three chapters of indicatives to three chapters now of in light of that, what does God call us to do as believers? I, notice the, there, the therefore, in light of this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace there's one body 
One spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Indeed, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth, talking about his incarnation, coming down to earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up into him who is the head into Christ. Now here's what I think is interesting. As he transitions from indicatives to imperatives of everything that he wants to start with, of everything that he knows they're going to face, of every area where he knows they're going to struggle... It's worth noting, what does he begin with? If you read the rest of the letter, you'll see that, oh, he's going to talk about, but how do I change? Christians still struggle to change. That shouldn't come out of my mouth so much. I shouldn't get that angry. I shouldn't be that bitter. I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, but I still struggle. How do I change? Ephesians 4. He's going to talk about how do you change. He's going to talk about communication. He's going to talk about marriage, parenting, workplace relationships, spiritual warfare, prayer, and more. But of everything he could begin with, as far as Paul was concerned, the top priority was that we would eagerly maintain, not create, maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's where he starts. But here's what I want you to understand before we get practical. What does he tell us we've got to do to maintain this? I want you to see quickly what Jesus did to create it. So Paul is not saying, make this happen. Try to create unity with all these different people that God is saving and bringing into the church. And you need to realize it's no harder today than it's ever been. They lived in a day where Jews hated Gentiles, called them dogs. Wow. And Gentiles hated Jews, and now God is saving Jews and Gentiles and bringing them into the same church. And guess what? Unity was not automatic. Woo, they thought so differently. They already had hostilities between each other. What's going to create the unity, and then what are we to do to, do to maintain it? Jesus created it. I want to show you number one. What has Jesus done to create unity in the church? What has Jesus done? You see, unity in the church family was not just Paul's top priority. It was Jesus's. Do you realize Jesus's final earthly prayer while he was still here in flesh? Of everything he could have prayed about, he chose to pray about unity. 
For the sake of time, we won't go there. In John chapter 17, you can read it, and it's worth reading, where he says, oh, Father, my hour has come. He's headed to the cross. In this prayer of everything he could have prayed about, oh, make them one. As you and I are one, glorify yourself. May they be one. May they be one. May they be one. And this really cool, in verse 20, he even begins to pray, and those that will come to know me through the word of others. He prayed for us today. He was praying for us. That's us today. He prayed for us. But what did Jesus pray for us? That we would be one. And here's what's at stake. Not that, oh, so it'll be sweet as can be and we'll just love being in the family of God. No, something greater is at stake. Two times in John 17 he says, so that the world may know that you have sent me. Do you realize one of the ugliest blights on the gospel that causes our world to put a huge question mark over, did Jesus ever come? Is there anything real to this thing called church and the gospel? Is disunity and hate and unforgiveness among believers. That the world may know that you've sent me. May they be one. So Jesus, of everything he could have prayed about, prayed Jesus made unity the focus of his final prayer. But he did more than just pray about it. Do you realize that Jesus died to make unity a reality? Go to Ephesians 2, and let me show you what I'm talking about. Skip a couple chapters back to Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus died to make unity a reality. It's not something we're trying to create. He did it. We got to maintain it. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our, say it, peace. Who has made us both one. He's talking about these two groups of people that have hated each other. Jews and Gentiles. You can insert whatever you want today. Republicans, Democrats. Whatever you want to put in there, homeschool, public school, whatever the difficulty, vaccination, not vaccination, I could go on. We're supposed to have peace with each other. He has made peace, made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. How did he do this? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace. Peace to you who once were far off and peace to those who were near. He's not saying some of you are less sinful than others. He's again talking about Jews and Gentiles because the Jews considered the Gentiles far off. No hope for them. They didn't get the covenant. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. They aren't the chosen people of God. They are far off. He's like, you know, Jesus came and preached peace to those who are far off and those who are near. Everybody comes into a right relationship with the God of the universe the same way with the same gospel and the same death of Jesus. To you who are far off and you who are near, verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers 
and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are family because of the blood of Jesus, because of the death of Jesus, because of what he did to make peace possible, because of the basis of what Jesus has done. But now here's an important clarification. Whenever we start to talk about unity, especially unity among the family of God, the mistake that human beings make all the time is to think the best way to have unity is to have everyone think the same way on every issue. So we'll be that church that just drives everyone away from here that doesn't homeschool. It's homeschool only. If you know Jesus, what is your problem? It's homeschool. You want to homeschool? Great. But we should not be the church that so touts that and condemns those who don't that everyone else just leaves and we've got this homeschool only church. You can find a homeschool only. You can find no drinking at all. We, we try to teach what the Bible teaches, drinking in moderation. So some of you said, I'm not ever gonna drink. My dad was an alcoholic. I want nothing to do with it. Good for you. Good choice. Others say, I'm gonna drink in moderation. So it's not what movies do you watch, not what your choice of alcohol, your choice of school. There are churches who try to make the unity based on uniformity. And it's not what Jesus died for. So I want you to understand in this passage Jesus wants to put on display something that the world cannot do. The world can do uniformity. That's what cults do. Cults achieve uniformity by outward pressure through condemnation and shame and threats and intimidation, right? So that everybody looks the same, talks the same, acts the same, says the same things for a while until it all blows up. And it always does blow up. Let me ask you. The homeschool-only church. Do you think those homeschool moms ever fight with each other in the homeschool-only church? That was weak. Yeah, they fight. Whoa. Woo. That didn't take care of sin because what happens is what you start out agreeing on, you'll find a way to disagree over the finer points of what you started out agreeing on. Doesn't matter what it is, but sin is that pervasive. And the world is not stunned or struck by uniformity. But when they see a diversity and they say, how do you do that? How do you still love each other? Then they consider the gospel. Then they consider Jesus Christ. I heard a comedian one time tell this story. And this is so sad but so true. He said in a conversation with a new acquaintance, he finally asked him, hey, are you Protestant or Catholic? The guy said, I'm Protestant. He said, me too. He said, what franchise? He said, Baptist, Baptist, me too. Northern or Southern? He said, Northern. He shouted, me too. And they went back and forth in agreement until finally he said, I said, Northern, Conservative, Fundamentalist Baptist, Great Lakes Region Council of 1879. Or Northern, Conservative, Fundamentalist Baptist, Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. The guy said, 1912. I said, die, heretic. And it would be even funnier if it wasn't so sad, right? So sad. Look at all you agree on, and then you're ready for someone to be shunned and die, and you consider them a heretic because they will not agree, agree on the finer points. So, he did not die for uniformity. 
in this passage, you'll see that he intended for there to be diversity in the midst of unity that would cause the world to say, what do you have we don't have? Look, look at the unity, what it's based on. I want to show you the ground or the basis for this unity. It's not outward pressure related to movies, alcohol, school choice, politics, hair length, clothing style, or anything else. You see the unity and the basis in verses four to six. Look at it. Verses four to six, he is telling us what makes us the same, what makes us the same. Woo, one God. I'm sorry, I jumped in the wrong place. And I've lost my place. Ah, verse four. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. He's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about your baptism, spiritual baptism into Christ that Paul was talking about in Romans six. One baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. I want you to notice how the entire Trinity is wrapped up in that one verse. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and what they have done to be the ground and basis for what would make us one, what would enable us to stay together. He uses the word one seven times. One, 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 one. So that you have far more in common with another believer, regardless of political allegiances or school choice, than you do with unbelievers. One baptism, one spirit, one faith, one hope. But then I want you to notice, on purpose, he shows the diversity because right out of verses four to six, he goes into seven with the word but, which is a contrasting conjunction to show you, here's what makes us the same, but he did not intend uniformity. Watch what he says, but. The grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What he's saying, he's not talking about saving grace, you guys. He's talking about gifting grace, grace gifting. And Christ is the one with authority that's measuring it out. He did not make us all the same, and he did not gift us all the same. The word grace and gift in the, in the Greek is very similar. Grace is charis and gift is charismata. So there's a grace gifting that empowers you to see things the way you do and you're gonna see it differently than another believer if you have the gift of mercy. But you have the gift of discernment. You have the gift of teaching. You have exhortation. You have helps. You have, and it's glorious, but I hope you realize it causes you to approach situations differently and see it differently and have maybe a different priority of what you think is most important, which is why it causes us sometimes, does it not? Surely it's not only me to say, good grief, you're a believer. What is wrong with you? Why don't you think like I think? And the sooner the whole world, but especially my church family, thinks the way I think, the better. Very hard for us to think, Man, now I'm not talking about one believer believes in the virgin birth, one doesn't. That's heresy. I'm talking about all those other things, even as you move forward through life as a family of God and thinking, how would we handle this? What should we do next? What? We allow what he meant to be a glorious tapestry that would cause the world to say, what do you have to become a source of irritation? Because we think, why doesn't every believer think just like I do. So now with that in place, Jesus prayed for it, 
Jesus died to make it a reality, and Jesus himself placed in the church a different gift grace measuring with each believer so that there'd be diversity in the midst of unity, not uniformity. Now, what does God call us to do to maintain it? Not create it, but to, what does he call us to do to maintain the unity that Christ died to create? That's what Paul is answering in verses two and three. Look at it again. With how much? Say it again. Say it like you need more of it. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now let me break it down for you because every single one of those words is worth chewing on. So here's what I think Paul is doing. If you read all the way to the end of the letter, here's what I think it would be fair to say. Number one, he is saying have convictions, but cultivate humility. See, here's another mistake. Some Christians think the way we'll have unity is we just don't believe anything. As soon as you start really believing something, that'll cause disunity, so back off. You can read all of Romans 14 to see that's not the answer. We're supposed to have convictions and hold them with a heart and a hand of humility. It's not don't have any convictions, don't believe anything. Have convictions. Woo! But cultivate humility. And not just a little bit of it either. I don't think it's any accident that Paul leads out with this. Humility. And he words it in a way that you realize, wow, not just a little. That word humility is used 200 times in the New Testament. And the way it's worded means we got to get a hold of this so that this humility encompasses and just wraps around everything we do in our relationships with each other in the family of God. Humility. Humility. You see, I hope you realize this. If you don't yet, this will be a gate to get a hold of. It doesn't matter how much you know, even Bible stuff. It doesn't matter how much you know or how much you can do or even how gifted you are to do it if you don't head into everything you're doing with all humility, you will do more harm than good. You'll do more harm than good. Because gifted is not the only thing that matters to God at all. And so Paul is saying this this humility cannot just be something on the edge of your life like a piece of parsley on the side of your plate. This humility with all humility. Here's what I think he's saying. Humility. Your life needs to reek of humility the way curry takes over a dish of food. Nobody says, help me. Is there curry in this? It's like, curry, your taste buds stand up and say, curry is in this. Yeah, it's one of those spices. Humility. Our lives should reek of it. It should be the first thing someone smells about you long before they note any giftedness. Humility. I smell it. I smell it. Humility. Humility. You say, all right, Brad, how can I cultivate this kind of humility in my life? Many ways do you find in the scriptures, but let me just bring two that I think are very appropriate in the context of church family. Two, number one, regularly express gratitude to God and others. 
for the church family, what you see happening in your church family. Regularly, if when you cease expressing gratitude to God and others, the relationship begins to go off the rail. And it's not just church family. Think about it in your marriage. If you're here and you're married, if you cannot remember the last time you thanked God for something about your spouse or expressed it to them, mark my words, your marriage is probably not in a good place. Gratitude. It's so easy to begin to shift. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. All those things that are right, they should be. I don't need to say thank you. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do. To God and them. The same thing happens in a church family, right? Oh, come in and like, I love it here. Woo! The pre- and, and the thought is, oh, this is so much better than my last church. Just stick around. Right? And that's how it goes. It's like, but then... Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna really poke the bear. I'm not gonna name it, but in our area, there's a big Christian ministry, and I watch it on the faces of people who I meet on Sunday. Like we moved here from California to work for, and now, oh my goodness, I'm gonna do computer programming or website with a Christian ministry. It's gonna be so sweet. None of all the problems I had in the marketplace. Give it some time, and then they're like, oh my goodness, I got sinned against there. I was done wrong there. I ran into massive problems there. And there's this thought. That's why I just hate it when I hear Christmas. I would love to work with all Christians. I do. All right? So so the F-bomb isn't being dropped. But there's sin. And sometimes it hurts worse because you're like, really? Dude, you love Jesus. I love Jesus. How could you? Yeah, you could. Sin. 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 So you got to keep expressing gratitude for what you do have and don't shift into just complaining to God and others about where you think the church family falls short, falls short from what it ought to be. Here's what I thought. Here's how I thought it would be, and it's not. Here's how I thought it would be, and it's not. Bonhoeffer has one of the most insightful and convicting little books I have ever read about church family, Christian community, titled Life Together. I mean, I've read it three times in the last 15 years. And he says this, listen to what he says, quote, we pray for the big things and forget to give thanks for the ordinary small. If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we've been placed, even where there's not great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty, if on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry, so petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Christ. When a person becomes alienated from the Christian community in which he has been placed and begins to raise complaints about it, he had better examine himself first to see whether the trouble is not due to his wish dream that should be shattered by God. And if this be the case, let him thank God for leading him into this predicament. The wish dream needs to be shattered. Then and only then can you really begin to taste and lay hold of grace and even know what it means to love someone else in the context of it not being this dream. Same is true with marriage, right? 
The same thing's true with marriage. You watch people, it's like, so many people could describe the early years of marriage like this. Oh my goodness, those first three years, I'm like, this is not what I thought about as a little girl or a little boy. This is not what I expected. Yeah, shocker, isn't it? And the same's true, but it doesn't mean get a divorce. If you could lean into that and get past the, oh, but, and say, God, now what? Because when you divorce them and you start over, you start with another sinner and it just repeats itself. Same is true for church. You just see people go from church to church. Just stay with the sinners you've gotten to know. And you know some names. At least you know their sin. Oh, that hurt. I'll remember that. You just start all over with new sinners, with new surprises. There's not as many surprises when you stay. And you say, all right, God. You died to enable us to love each other. Your gospel is big enough for me to forgive. That's, that's when good things begin to happen and that's what he intended in the church family. Let me give you a second one. Number two, here's what you can do to cultivate with all humility. Keep seeing yourself, this is gonna shock some of you, as the biggest sinner Biggest sinner you know in our church family. Now some of you right now are saying, but what if I'm not? There's the problem. (laughs) But what if I'm not? I'm just not. I am not. What am I supposed to do? Repent. (laughs) I'm serious. But and it's the same way in the marriage. But but his sin is bigger than my sin. Her sin is bigger than my. Get over yourself. Because what you see in the scriptures in Matthew 7, 1 to 5, Jesus says, hypocrite. Get the what? Log out of your own eye. But some of you are saying, mine's not a log, it's a splinter. His is the log. Same problem. <laughs> Jesus didn't say, let me sit down with you and hear everything that's going on so I can decide who's the log, who's the splinter. Here's what he's wanting to convey to us. If it's in your life, it's a log. You ever had something in your eye? And when you finally get it out, you're like, oh my word, it should be this big, is what I felt like. When it's in your eye, it's huge. And it's keeping you from even seeing that other person the way you might or could or should. He says, get the log out of your own eye first. And then you can see more clearly to help your brother or sister with the splinter that they're dealing with. Gary Thomas says this about marriage. And I think it could be applied to church family. He says this quote, I have a theory behind virtually every case of marital dissatisfaction. I confirm his theory. After three decades of biblical counseling, sitting with real people at close range who are real unhappy, Christians who love Jesus, both of them, I say, wow, spot on. In every case of marital dissatisfaction, there lies unrepented sin. Couples don't fall out of love so much as they fall out of repentance. They stop seeing their own sin and they stop repenting of it and they start pointing out someone else's sin and calling them to repent of it and there'll be no joy. There'll be no progress. There'll be no oneness. There'll be no hope in that. He says sin, wrong attitudes, personal failures that are not dealt with slowly erode the relationship, assaulting and eventually erasing the once lofty promises made in the throes of an earlier less polluted passion. I can't tell you how many times it breaks my heart. We'll get to a point where by God's grace, I've helped her see 
what she should repent of and I've helped him see what he should repent of and we're at a log jam. Nobody wants to repent or own their sin. They're trying to prove who's most right and who's most wrong and we're done. I just have to move the tassel and graduate them on out into the church family with no real change because I don't have a magic bullet for repentance. If you won't own your own sin and you're not willing to humble yourself and repent, that marriage won't get better. And it's the same in the church family. What about me? When you get hurt or when you feel like, ah, your first thought should not be, How can they do that? What is wrong with them? What are they thinking? It should be, Lord, what am I missing about me? What am I not seeing about me? That's the biblical response. That's why since 2009, I didn't coin it, I didn't think of it, but I read it, and I've been bringing it before you for marriage and church family. Since 2009, I've been saying, here's what the Bible teaches. See your own sin. Oh, I'm gonna stay here. Love you. See, uh, see your own sin first. See your own sin as worse. And see your own sin as what you should be working on. Oh, I do love you. <laughs> Sometimes you think, they don't listen. Oh, you do. And if you say something for 10 years, you get it. That'll change your marriage. It's changed mine. That'll change your work relations. That'll change your church family, see your own sin first. See your own sin is worse. See your own sin is what you need to be working most. But Paul's not done. Not just all humility. Look what he adds in verse two. And gentleness. Some of your translations say meekness. Here's how I would put it. Number two, don't deny your strengths, but cultivate meekness. You realize as, as Christ did this grace gifting You have strengths, every one of you has some strengths, but what you've got to recognize is to be effective in a marriage or a church family or anything, you have to have strength under control instead of out of control. The word for meekness or gentleness there is a word in the Greek that meant a powerful animal like an ox or a stallion that has been so trained and domesticated that he is now under control control and useful in serving the same is true for us folks if all you have is an awareness of your gifting and your strength you're not ready to do ministry because here's what you need to realize every strength has an achilles heel or a dark side to it the sooner you personally recognize what the achilles heel or dark side of your strength is the sooner you will be much more effective in ministry Strength under control. You know, you think, well, isn't it good that I have the gift of teaching? Or isn't it good that I have the gift of discernment or mercy or helps or administration or leadership? Yes, absolutely. But oh my goodness, you'll do more damage than good if you don't have meekness. And meekness is not synonymous with weakness. Don't pretend you're not gifted and say, well, no, no, no. But what would that strength look like under control? Let me help you understand what I'm t- talking about. I think God has given me the gift of leadership. Do we need leaders? Does God use men and women who are willing to lead out, do a hard thing, take new ground, say, here we go? Absolutely, there's a dearth of leadership. Almost no one wants to lead anything today. They'd rather watch and throw rocks and criticize. So yes, we need 
But oh, you better realize that strength has an Achilles heel. So here's the downside of my gift of leadership. It only takes me two seconds to know what I think about any situation. I mean, it's like, boom, I see it where I think we should go, and I feel it so strongly, I am ready to say and do whatever I think needs to be said or done to get us moving there. What does meekness look like? Let me tell you, it's not easy. There are times that it feels like I am pulling with all my might on the leather reins of my stallion leadership with my forearms quivering, beads of perspiration popping up in meetings and situations where my leadership, stallion leadership is snorting and stamping its hooves and ready to gallop through that meeting and over people. But I'm like, oh, wait, wait for it. Listen, I don't need to listen. I know what we should do. And if I don't say it soon enough, someone else might say something stupid and will do not what I want to do. Wait, listen, ask clarifying questions, allow differing opinions, yes, even that, to come to the surface. And wait, I'm like, oh! And if you think, oh man, you, you, you don't do that. You should have known me before I focused on this. I, I, don't, don't hear me saying I still need to work on it, but intentional. How did that happen? I saw it from God's word, and tell you what else. People that loved me enough came to me and told me. Peter LaRuffa. Yeah. And I hate him now. No, that's the point, right? You can either hate that person, and he had the love. He loved me enough to come to me and say, Brad, we all love you, and he was doing all that table dressing. I knew a, a rebuke is coming. Just go rebuke, man. We all... He said, let me get you to think about something. When you speak too soon in meetings, no one else wants to say anything because we all love you so much and you are such an influencer and you make such sense and it's so, wait, wait. That helped me. I had to write it down. I wrote it down. Wait. (laughs) And, And I pray about this regularly. Regularly I pray about humility. Regularly I pray about meekness. You say, pray some more. I will. I will. But I'm having to intentionally recognize the Achilles heel and the dark. I know some of you are sitting there thinking, that doesn't happen to me. I don't know. I watch other people and think, how can you just sit there? But here's what I want you to know. You know, I'm just like, oh, this is so hard to not say. Whatever your gift is, it may not look like running, galloping through a meeting over people. But trust me, your gift of mercy has an Achilles heel dark side. Your gift, whatever your gift is, there's a dark side. And the sooner you recognize that and say, God, help me to have strength under control, the more useful you will be. But Paul's not done. He adds a few more church, family, changing words in verse two. Look at what he adds. And patient bearing with one another. Patient, in love, in love. Here's how I would say it. Be passionate. You know I'm passionate. I would love every believer to be passionate. Be passionate, but be patient and forbearing with people around you. Here's what I think is interesting. In the Greek, there's more than one word for patient, and Paul reaches over and grabs the word for patience in the Greek, that is focused exclusively on this kind of patience. It's macrothumia. 
patience with people. Oh my goodness, that's so, isn't that not true? It's like, people are my way. People drive me crazy. It's people. Oh, that's so hard for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself, I was so encouraged. Here's this man that writes life together, and when I read it, I'm thinking, I want to be like him. And then he says this, I was so encouraged. He says, I find people extremely exhausting. <laughs> well, thank you, Bonhoeffer. But see, Here's the deal. It's not just that people exhaust us. Here's what sometimes is hard, depending on your gifting. People will slow you down. And Americans, more than most, think the measure of ministry is speed. How much we're getting done and how soon we get there. How much we're getting done and how soon we get there. So if your measure of ministry is speed, you're going to be very frustrated in the family of God because a family of God will absolutely slow you down. And so there's a tendency sometimes to think, I'm so done with the family of God. They just slow me down. It is me and Jesus going solo. Not commando, solo. Well, if you go commando, you'll probably be solo. But (laughs) solo. I can get so much more done with my gift without the body of Christ. Man, I'm like, a, I'm like a single SWAT team. I get in, I get out, I go, and kingdom is being built up. Well, there's the church just languishing. Hey, guess what? God's number one concern is not speed in ministry, but us becoming more like Jesus in the process. And that takes time. Read your Bible. God is not about speed. He loves making people wait. Like Moses, did he have a gift of leadership? Did God intend for him to lead the people out of Egypt? What about the timing there? Moses was like, I'm ready. Kills an Egyptian. Like, let's go. And God says, how about 40 years in the desert just looking at sheep? (laughs) And after 40 years, then God lights up a bush and and says, now go. And Moses is like, I can't even speak anymore. I've just been with sheep. And God's perfect, perfect. Now you're useful to me. In our minds, we'd like four wasted decades. The Israelites still languished in slavery for 40 more years. God is not about speed. Patience. Mark Dever. Oh, and here's what I think is interesting on that word bearing. Did you notice? He didn't say bearing one another's burdens. There are places in the Bible that talk about that, like Galatians 6, 1 and 2, to put your shoulder under someone else's burden and help them bear it. This is talking about something harder. The person is the burden. You're not helping them bear a burden. It's like bearing with one another. I'm I'm called to bear the burden of you. Right? There's times in a marriage where you're bearing the burden of your spouse. There's times in a church family where you're bearing the burden of someone else. That's hard for us, but it's what he's called us to do. Patient. Mark Dever tells of a story where he had a friend while he was in graduate school that was involved in Christian ministry but not associated with any particular one church. And he watched this friend, they, they went to the same church for a while, and while Mark joined the church, plugged in, wanted to serve, his friend, he noticed, would just slip in late, just in time for the sermon. And so he decided to ask him about his half-hearted involvement in the family of God. He said, hey, what's going on? And the guy said, oh, I don't get anything out of the rest of that service. 
And he said, have you ever thought about joining the church? And he said, when I asked him that, he seemed so startled. And he said, honestly, I don't know why I would join the church. I know what I'm here on this earth for. And those people would just slow me down. Gifted? Sure. Here's, here's, here's what you need to remember. Those people are the people of God that Christ died for and he intends for them to slow what what do you smell in that young man's answer i don't smell humility do you it reeks of self and pride god isn't just interested in any of us being this amazing ministry soldier that does so much so fast He's interested in making us more like Jesus. And that is much more likely to happen in the context of a church family with real people where you can put into practice all humility. Saying, is there something I'm missing? What about me? What about me? What about me? I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. <gasps> Gentleness. I've got this strength, but I'm supposed to. God, help me to have that under control. Patience. Bearing in love. He, he says in love in verse two and he caps it off again in verse 16. In love, in love, in love. When you look at the scriptures, you'll see that getting ministry done is not God's primary goal. Us all becoming more like Jesus is his number one goal because that's what will change the world. That's what will change homes. That's what will change the workplace. That's what will change our community. The world also doesn't care how much you know and how gifted you are to do something. They, they can't put their finger on it, but sometimes they know what is wrong, what is still missing, what is going on here. Whereas you may not be that gifted. You may not be that, that fast in all that you can do, but if you are Christ-like and they smell the aroma, 2 Corinthians 4, of the knowledge of Christ. Giftedness doesn't get their attention. The smell of Jesus does. What is this? What is this? And he tells us in verse 15 exactly what the end game is. In verse 15, hopefully you sensed it as I read it. Yeah, he's given us all gifts. Yeah, he's, that we may grow up in Every way, the way we talk, the way we serve, the way we forgive, the way we forbear, the way we prefer, in every way, into him who is the, even Jesus, did he know his Bible? I think so. I mean, he could just quote it. What was he characterized by? Humility. Humility. He reeked of humility, and he's the one we're supposed to be following. All humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Oh God, thank you for what you've done by your spirit in drawing us who were enemies First of all, to you, there's no hope for peace between each of us until there's peace between us and God. But you have done that in your son. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
We are no longer at war with you. We are no longer under your wrath. We are no longer slaves to sin and condemnation. You have set us free, adopted us, redeemed us, filled us with your spirit, given us a hope and an inheritance that's outside of this world. God, forgive us when we lose sight of that and begin to go to war with each other over things that are not supposed to be the main thing. And when we're hurt, oh God, may we turn to that same gospel that saved us and look to that same hill where Christ died for our sins and say, because God has forgiven me all my sins, I will likewise forgive. Forgive and love and show mercy Oh God, even this year, were you not to stir up another gift or strengthen another gift or sharpen another ministry skill, would you be pleased to cause this year in Grace Fellowship Family to be the year that there is the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ, that we would grow up into him who is the head, Help us to consider with the strengths that we have, am I cultivating humility? How? How am I intentionally? Am I seeking to have my strength under control by cultivating meekness? Work in us by your spirit for your glory that you may be glorified in the church. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.